0: Suncast is brought to you by Sungrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar.
1: We like to categorize ourselves and sort of as the Intel inside of the home energy management industry.
0: Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. We're rocking and rolling here in 2020. Can you believe we're already halfway into January of this new decade? Well. I am thrilled that you've chosen to spend yet another hour of your time here and I'm excited to bring you today's entrepreneur. You know, software services available for customers and companies alike can be confusing and mind-boggling, but one thing's for sure, software has helped improve the data and decision-making for millions of customers and the insights that we can glean from that data are an ever-increasing element of the internet of things and the electrification of everything. You know, a couple of months ago, I was on Twitter as I sometimes am in the middle of the day, and one of my Twitter followers answering a question I'd posed. That Twitter user, by the way, is at a wesley777. Thank you. He replied that he was pleased with the data analytics console that his utility provided for him, and it helped him make better decisions as a consumer. Something along those lines. But it really piqued my interest, and as I dug deeper, I was eventually able to connect back to the company that he was actually referring to, which was behind the hardware and software that he was referring to. That company is called Powerly, and they have a phenomenal product and a remarkable story. And today, you're going to hear from their co-founder, Kevin Foreman. Kevin and I had a wide-ranging conversation about the birth and evolution of Powerly, and we get into the weeds, busting myths about residential user data Internet of Things, and the future of software and energy, even the future of the business model for utilities and SaaS for our sector. It's a conversation that you won't want to miss. So hang tight and enjoy the Geek Fest. And I'd also encourage you, of course, to head over to mysuncast.com where you can check out our catalog of over 200 other inspiring and influential clean tech leaders' stories. Get on our mailing list so that we can stay in touch, and you'll know when an episode like this Drops. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. All right, Suncast, Solar Warriors, as promised, we are expanding horizons here on Suncast, not always digging into solar uh, or even renewables specific companies, but trying to get the goods for you on how, broadly speaking, Entrepreneurs pivot from one business to the next and are applying that technology to the overall clean energy and market transition that we see happening. Part of that is with regard to renewables, which we talk about a lot, and a lot of it is due to what we see happening in the home. I mean, ultimately, this drives back to how you and I use power in our homes I had a a question that some of you responded to on Twitter, which essentially was, how would you spend five minutes with me over coffee? And thanks to Tom, who I mentioned in the intro, we were connected with a company I was completely unaware of, but has fascinated me as I've learned more about it. And so we get the opportunity to chat with the chief technology officer of this company, Powerly, today. Kevin Foreman, welcome to Suncast. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, man. Excited to have you here as well. So a bit about Kevin, you are driving core technology platform and product experience for Powerly, which we'll talk about. It's a home energy management platform. Before that, Kevin worked at a company called Vectorform and working on breakthrough technologies for some of the largest brands in the industry. And you also worked for a few utilities, or at least one that is well known uh, up in in the, the Detroit area. So the other thing that I learned about you is that you're a passionate innovator. The user experience is core to kind of everything that you guys are focused on. I was intrigued by the whole notion of and We'll certainly get into what your product does, what problem you're solving, et cetera. But before we dive into that, Kevin, I'd love to understand uh, a bit about your background and how you migrated into the energy sector,
1: broadly speaking.
0: Could you give us a bit, about, a bit of that transition?
1: So, I've always loved to design and, and create things, um, and I'm and generally quite picky. <laughs> and found that I always seem to want something that doesn't quite exist yet, uh, whether it be a product or uh, a particular design of something or some tool just to to make mundane tasks sort of easier or even fun and delightful to actually use. And that's why I got into home automation. Actually, when I first purchased my my first home, I just found the sort of managing of the state of lights and appliances and that kind of stuff, quite annoying and mundane. And I felt like there's got to be a way to make living within a, a home a little bit easier. But early on, I found that it was quite difficult to take an idea to reality. You all, always had to um, try to work with somebody else or you know, the communication gap between something that's in your head and trying to get that to, uh, to fruition can, can be a rough transition in many cases. So what I did was is wanted to try to build this stuff myself, and so I started down the path of programming to be able to take an idea that I had and try to turn that into a workable solution. Um, and so, for uh, my undergrad, I went and, and got a computer science degree from Lawrence Technology University. I wanted to ded- dedicate my career on fusing sort of these ideas, this design, with technology to create create new things was college. I went to, got my first internship actually at DT Energy, as you mentioned. And uh, one of the things that I did there was work with a subsidiary, subsidiary called Clean Downtown, where they were dispatching remote cleanup crews to sort of any location around Detroit that someone reported sort of needed, sort of needed some love. Um, so I created a real-time GPS platform that they could use to dispatch and manage remote workers using Google Maps and mobile devices. And that was a lot of fun. And I think they're actually still using that uh, that platform today. But really where my career started sort of building um, into more of a leadership position was actually at Toyota. So Toyota was great because they really focus a lot on culture, process, and management. I mean, the first two weeks when you get to Toyota, you don't even really do what you're hired for. They put you through a process and culture training. And they were really the genesis of things like agile and lean manufacturing with the Toyota production system. And this is where... I learned a lot about Kaizen and this continuous improvement idea where just because you ship something doesn't mean it's finished, right? You always want to continuously evaluate and make sure that you're achieving your goal with um, a particular feature that you're working on. One of the big things that I got from Toyota was this uh, idea around uh, genshi gambutsu, essentially roughly translated to go and see or finding the root cause of an actual problem and fixing that and not the symptoms of what that actual problem is. Early on in my career, I was getting a lot of experience building stuff, but really Toyota allowed me to think more on the opposite side of trying to figure out the right and efficient way to actually build things. And then I actually went to uh, to Vectorform. So Vectorform was, was a lot of fun. I worked there for 10 years and worked on a lot of great platforms and working with a lot of great brands. Um, but the first week when I first started at Vectorform, my boss sort of left and he said, I got to go to a conference. Here's a new Microsoft Surface table. Um, just play around with it. See what you can do. So in the first week, I actually I had a really strong passion for writing music. And so I merged that passion with this product called Surface DJ where essentially I was just creating a bunch of different loops and those types of things and made it really easy for people to feel like they're making music. That started this idea and this journey that I was actually able to progress that vector form, which is actually building products and experiences. And that led us to going back to DT Energy when back in 2012, they asked us to build a mobile app for them to coincide with their AMI or smart meter rollout. We sort of, our CEO went back and said, you know, we can do more than a mobile app. So they're like, all right, well, Prove it. Show us. So we spent a month feverishly researching what we could do with AMI meters and a a platform that could actually make energy fun and exciting. So when we started doing a lot of our research in this space, we found that uh, there's actually an Accenture study out of 2016, you might have heard of this, um, that as users or energy uh, consumers, we think about our energy consumption only 20 minutes throughout the entire year. The rest of it is out of sight, of out of mind. So we knew we needed to figure out a way to make energy exciting. And we weren't the first real-time platform to exist. There was in-home displays that came almost a decade earlier than what we were trying to do. There's been a lot of tools trying to um, to get people engaged in their electricity consumption, but we knew there had to be something that was blocking users from actually getting engaged. And so we knew that real-time was key, And so we built our own hardware and we wanted to make sure that we could provide real-time energy feedback to consumers. Similar to the automotive space, uh, the automotive industry, just by adding real-time fuel indicators to their vehicles, they were able to reduce fuel consumption by 35%. No changes to the actual drivetrain, no engine improvements, just by showcasing to a driver in real-time their fuel economy, you can actually reduce fuel consumption by 35%, and we wanted to do the exact same thing to homeowner's energy consumption. And so one of the things we also needed to do was build sort of this remarkability feature within the app, right? Like, how can I get neighbors to talk about their energy consumption to others? And what we built was, and we had this idea of, could we use the magnetometer or the compass inside of an actual iPhone to read the electromagnetic field of an appliance without any additional hardware. So we spent a, about a month on that particular uh, proof of concept and was able to, in the original pitch to DTE Energy, showcase just with an iPhone the ability to read a real-time energy consumption from an appliance just by holding your iPhone up to any power cord. And that was really cool. They were really excited about this. We took about two years to actually build that whole platform out and DTE was, was hoping within the first month to get about 10,000 users within, I'm sorry, within the first year to get about 10,000 users within the platform. And we achieved that within the first month. So it was a very, very successful uh, a pilot and program they were running at DTE. And that caught the attention of a lot of other utilities throughout the industry. And so when they, they came out to ask DTE, hey, you know, can we license this technology from you? Uh, DTE and VectorForm, where I was working at the time, They said, you know what, why don't we spin this off into its own separate company to provide these types of tools for the industry at large? And that's uh, that's kind of the origin story of Barley.
0: I hear in you, very much an educator, I hear someone who's passionate not just about the product, but the the implications of how the product uh, affects the world. Is there anything in particular that you, as you look back over maybe your childhood or your training or even your personality, that you feel lends... To that ability for you to not, unlike what we might blanket statements say as like a typical software engineer, you seem very eloquent in your ability to communicate with words the types of things that you're communicating with code in the back end.
1: Yeah, for sure. No, I think that uh, you know, one of the things that I always set out to do was to solve a use case, not necessarily to build something. I mean, internally at PowerLay, I always tell my team, it's not what we're trying to make; it's what we're trying to achieve. And if we're not achieving a particular goal in mind, then what we're making is largely irrelevant, right? Like our company is set out to actually perform um, a service that is is in lieu of a higher end goal that we're trying to achieve. And so, I take that approach with with every every challenge or every problem that I see that exists. I actually look at every problem. As an opportunity for a creative solution that we uh, that we can build, and so it's one of those things where you know I don't want to build technology for technology's sake. I think that technology is a means to an end, and it's not actually the reason to do stuff. Um, so if we can achieve something without technology, I am actually I think that's a great idea. But technology is such an enabler for so many great things, uh, especially in the home energy management space, that it's a foundational element. But if you're not thinking about the user experience that technology can actually enable, then I think that uh, you're sort of looking at problems uh, a bit backwards.
0: I think there's so much to unpack about Powerly that perhaps it's worth spending some more time here in 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 the beginning to really set the stage for how things have traditionally been done I guess I want to make sure I'm clear. The the app that you guys created, you literally just hold the phone up to a power cable, and it would tell you the consumption of that device.
1: That's right. Yeah. Um, and so when we first initially pitched that to DT. And other companies, they sort of, they sort of had a highly skeptical look and said, "All right, is this smoke and mirrors? Is this real? We're actually, we have a patent pending on it, so I, I can, I can promise you it is real." I mean, it's one of those things where, and Elon Musk actually, he's a, he's, he's a huge inspiration to me. One of the things that he always uh, promotes is this idea of first principles thinking, of really boiling things down to the core principles of how things operate. And if you think about uh, an actual compass and how it works, it reads the uh, magnetic fields of the earth and essentially uses that information to present, you know, are you facing north or, you know, wh- what direction are you actually facing? Uh, but if you send a uh, current through a wire and it creates an electromagnetic field, and so that was the first initial th- hypothesis that we had. Is, is there enough disturbance of that sensor that is in an actual device that, uh, um, that will allow us to actually measure power consumption and so it's one of those things where we we follow the scientific method of having a hypothesis let's experiment this out and see if this actually works Um, but we knew and we we anchored that thesis into this idea of a use case that we wanted customers to be able to remark about this particular feature to their friends without needing any additional hardware without needing you know a complicated setup of actual devices we wanted people to even just go into their local electronics retailer and measure the the power consumption and the costs, the electricity costs of appliances they're about to buy. Like, what other tool could you use to actually measure the um, difference between like an OLED or an LCD TV or their uh, appliance that you know their electric dryer they might uh, purchase or those types of things? We wanted something that customers could really use. That was one of those things where. We focused a lot around the use case and then the technology to drive that. And that was actually quite a lot of fun to to work on for sure.
0: You know, what most people are probably familiar with in the current innovation or integration of home automation and you, use case for helping homeowners with uh, being conscious of what their energy usage is it, are, are companies like Opower, right? And similar companies that work with utilities to help create essentially reports. Is that accurate? Like reporting on the way that you may or may not be using energy based on others in your neighborhood and and putting measurement tools inside the home to achieve that.
1: Yeah. And uh, you know, power and those home energy reports are a great first step at getting consumers to start thinking about their energy consumption. Uh, again, um, that Accenture study did take some of that stuff into account. Where we're only thinking about our energy consumption about 20 minutes out of the year. But it is a great first way to get consumers to realize that they may need an improvement. With a lot of research that we found... Consumers really just want uh, to find any sort of way to justify why their energy consumption is higher than their neighbors or somebody else. So, um, you know, the first first excuse they can come up with to say, oh, well, I work from home or, oh, I have an electric vehicle or, oh, I have X, Y, and Z, they're going to go to that particular explanation to try to justify why their electricity may be higher. So what we found is you have to be incredibly personable around a particular user's environment. And this is applicable and true for both home automation and energy consumption. No two homes are trying to solve the exact same use case because everybody's schedule is different, everybody's lifestyle is different, and so are their preferences. Um, and that really does cross the chasm between both you know, smart home automation as well as home energy management and, and energy visualization. So we found it incredibly paramount to focus on the personalization and the very specific environments for the, the smart home and energy visualization alike. Kevin it's fascinating to me the business model that you have
0: because on the surface as much as it might look like a company like Opower or even some of the uh, smart connected uh, technology companies that are controlling loads like Lumen and others that have that have popped up in the in the uh, home automation clean energy space that we're familiar with in the solar energy business i'm really trying to figure out where you guys sit in the marketplace and how Actually as an entrepreneur, how you decided that that 's where the greatest leverage would be applied? I mentioned in the intro that Tom uh, the entire reason I know about powerly is because a user at DTE a, a, a utility customer tweeted about DTE Insight, which is a product that you 've co branded with DTE where basically power is is underlying the technology so help me understand the difference of DTE Insight and other products like that 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 Powerly is creating that help the customer journey, but that differentiate you in the marketplace from an O power or
1: uh, or similar peer. Absolutely, uh, no. It's um, it's, all, it's one of those hard things where you're working on a lot of great tech and and no one really knows who you are. Um, it's always one of those things that's been been a bit tough. But we like to we like to categorize ourselves as sort of as the Intel inside of the home energy management industry, right? We want to be a, a platform provider. And we want to deliver these types of sort of turnkey solutions to utilities, but ultimately allow the utilities to be that first party experience and have them run the program as if it were their own. Uh, we were born out of the utility space. So we are, or you know, we're a JV between. DT energy and, and vector form. And so we understand that we get that utilities want to maintain their customer and they don't want to necessarily give up their customer to third parties and, and technology companies um, that are actually trying to penetrate this space. And so um, we want to make sure that uh, our platform is completely white labeled down to the instructions and in the box that the actual hardware, the energy bridge that we ship to connect smart meters um, to get real-time energy consumption we want that to be branded as well uh, so that end consumers start to look at their utility companies to actually be service providers of these types of, of services, behind-the-meter services, rather than just sort of this commodity-driven uh, selling kilowatt hours um, you know, on a monthly basis. We really want to make sure that consumers are starting to look at their utility uh, to be providers around the home energy management space. So in that regard, and the way
0: you described it to me was b 2 b to c so your business selling to a business, Mm -hmm. DTE, that sells to their customer. Uh, I totally get that, which doesn't lend itself to a strong brand for you with the consumer. But again, because the utility space is, I mean, we'll call it a relatively small and familial space, right? Like the guys, executives at DTE talk to the executives at other utilities, as evidenced by Vectorform's success with the mobile app. In that regard, and given that we still are very much in the wild, wild west of home automation, where the average consumer, myself included, who considers himself on the bleeding edge, may not even have installed a, a smart light, let alone you know a multitude of platforms that would help with automation. So where do you guys see uh, over the next three to five years that you are uh, disrupting a marketplace and who are the peers or competitors that you take note of and that probably are taking note of you?
1: Yeah, no, it's uh, this is you know one of those things that we're trying to make sure that uh, that we get right because in as you mentioned the smart home space it is the wild breast right now and um, you know we kind of equate it to the early days of Wi-Fi um, you know with, with Wi-Fi the only time that someone had Wi-Fi is if they went out to their local electronics retailer purchased a Wi-Fi router installed it and configured it themselves that was essentially how you got Wi-Fi nowadays. Um, we all get Wi-Fi through our ISPs. You know they bundle that within their modem, and we pay five dollars a month for that service. And now Wi-Fi is pretty much ubiquitous. If we look at the same opportunity in the utility space, and this is really how we think that we're a sort of a, a large differentiator here, we believe that you can get your uh, your smart home platform or your home energy management platform delivered by the utility themselves, um, but. That's going to be a tough sell for consumers who are not used for their utility company to provide services like these, right? Google, Amazon, Apple, their household names, Samsung, are household names. But you know, your utility is, is not necessarily a household name when it comes to home automation devices or when it comes to these types of services. You don't just naturally look to your utility to provide those. So we, uh, we know that this is a, a journey for customers, right? And it, start, it really does start with, uh, you know, energy awareness around things like home energy reports. Or if you download our application, you get to see your AMI interval data immediately when you, when you download the app. And that's going to tell you some higher level trend-like information and give you some scores on, you know, how well you're doing and where you can improve. Um, but we need to convince consumers to actually start to, to look at their real-time energy consumption. As I mentioned earlier, you can reduce uh, a lot of your energy consumption through behavior change just by understanding where your energy is is going. And so we do a lot of education around how well real-time energy can um, improve your or lower your bill and improve your energy efficiency, lower your carbon footprint. And so customers naturally sort of graduate into a real-time energy experience by first getting the energy awareness through AMI interval data or home energy reports. Uh, but once consumers start to see their real-time energy consumption and they see that their, their coffee maker uses 1,800 watts or that they leave their HVAC system uh, set to 65 degrees in the summer when they go to work and, you know, that costs them 4 or $5 on a daily basis, you naturally want to start being able to manage and control those devices and this was something that we didn't necessarily see or, or anticipate early on. We we delivered a great real-time energy experience, but customers kept asking us it's like, it's great that I can see that I left my light on when I went to work, or that I left my coffee maker on when I went to work, but I just want to be able to turn it off from the same app. And that's really what what drove us down uh, and to redesign our hardware to continue to you know, be able to support the five, the top five IoT protocols um, to really close the gap between energy awareness and visualization with device management and control over those same appliances that use that energy. And so, you know, our our big design goal for customers is to you know teach them that and give them energy awareness around how their home is operating, all the way to installing their tenth light bulb their 10th controllable light bulb within their home um, over the course of several months to a year. So that's really where when we look at this problem holistically, we don't want to design siloed solutions for just energy visualization or just home energy reports or just the smart home side of things. We really look at this as a customer journey from awareness to management to full home optimization, when all of these things are working together, to me that's nirvana for a, for a true home energy management solution. So, how do you guys think
0: about working with your customer, the utility, to integrate this customer journey? Uh, is it you know, and what's the timeline look like as well, where you're having a discussion with these utilities about how the product and technology that that you foresee being a reality, this idea of like bundling and um, being sort of an, a service provider like an ISP? What does that conversation look like for you with your customer?
1: You know, it's one of those things where the industry there's a really large topic in the industry right now around advanced and more complex rates, moving from sort of the flat, the flat rate where sort of we have kilowatt hour neutrality, where we don't really think about our energy costs too much—it's all flat—to um, you know real-time pricing uh, changes or demand charges, and this is really prevalent in the industry right now, and and utilities are getting a lot of pushback from their from their public utility commissions and other regulatory bodies to say, you can't really put these complex rates on consumers without tools uh, like ours in, for, or in order for customers to be able to actually manage this. So I think that there's this natural evolution within the utility space right now that we need to get to more of these types of tools so that they can roll out these more dynamic rates that are great for the utility, no doubt. But utility has always sort of been in this position where they do a lot of things that are great for the operation and distribution uh, of the utility company, but not, not so great for consumers. In fact, we saw that with the AMI rollout, even at DTE and other utilities, where you know AMI pr- provides a lot of great functionality for utilities. But when the consumer sees it, we saw a ton of backlash from consumers saying, you know, I don't want the smart meter. It's, you know, giving me all these health issues. It's spying on me. It's, you know, consumers will think up all of these, um, these issues when they don't understand or get any value from the infrastructure improvements uh, that utilities want it to roll out. And so what we're trying to do is swing the pendulum in the opposite direction and give consumers a lot of value for things like complex and advanced rates. Consumers shouldn't necessarily be scared for them, um, because there's a lot of opportunity for consumers to save on things like time-of-use rates or, or even uh, more complex rates, as long as their appliances are in sync with those actual rate types. And so, we're trying to look at, uh, you know, the vector of where the industry is moving and trying to come up with solutions to meet those demands. And one of those, like I said, is this advanced rate topic. And we think that there's a great opportunity for uh, utilities to. Um, proliferate these types of tools and services to make sure that we can move the industry in that direction, but make sure that customers are getting the value from that as well.
0: You know, given kind of what you just described and the nature of some of the bigger utilities in in the marketplace, you know, PG&E and and even Duke, my home uh, territory service provider, uh, North Carolina, uh, have their own internal skunkworks teams. I'd imagine that some of the others in the Midwest uh, like Excel, as w- do as well. Therefore the utility in in some cases is going to be they're going to be internally perplexed by the build versus buy conundrum. How do you work to overcome that within the utilities and what do you see happening right now in the utility space around innovation that that does start to Create competition for you at the same
1: uh, level where you are looking for customers ironically, our biggest competitor in many cases can be the utilities themselves, one on you know the, sort of the aforementioned um, utilities are building out their own internal innovation groups to to focus on similar tools because they see the same problem, and we actually think that's great uh, you know I think similar to you know i 'll go back to Elon uh, and his sort of vision around Tesla where you know, he mentioned that if Tesla were to go bankrupt, but the rest of the automotive industry actually started proliferating, focusing on electric vehicles, that would be a win for Tesla, uh, ultimately. And I see sort of the same thing with, you know, from our perspective. I mean, yeah, it would suffer powerly if we were to go bankrupt and utilities start doing this themselves. But I think that, you know, with climate change being such a, a big issue and topic, if the utilities, if we catalyze the utility industry to start getting their customers to think much more uh, than 20 minutes a year on their electricity consumption and actually provide the correct tools and services to be able to uh, truly reduce energy. Holistically to much more better manage the grid, uh, to be able to you know proliferate things like DERS and solar and uh, and and storage, so that we can get to you know a truly renewable world. If we can start doing that, and we were the catalyst for that, and ultimately we don't succeed, you know I'm happy. I, I think that we've achieved great success if we can proliferate that. But we also see other utilities. You know they don't necessarily want to be an active player in the home energy landscape. Some of them are are willing to let the market figure it out and they'd rather be sort of facilitators than providers of these types of services. So um, in many cases, you know, our, our biggest competitor can can be the utility sometimes, but um, a lot of folks, you know, we we don't want to be an outsider looking into this industry. We are born out of the utility space and we understand the problems that utilities provide. And what we're trying to do is, instead of this conversation that many utilities are having nowadays, where they're thinking about DER and solar and advance rates and all these tools being five to 10 years out, we can do this today. And we want to bring in those five to 10-year goals that utilities are claiming. We want to be able to proliferate that You know, right now in 2020, Um, and so that is the you know the exciting opportunity that we have, and, and we just want to work with as many utilities as we can to proliferate these types of tools and services for their customers. I love it. I love the the segue
0: there in the conversation around Tesla creating their own sort of large transformation as a platform. And you're right; it's a conundrum for you guys as innovators and entrepreneurs. I would love to be a fly on the wall. Some of the conversations that you all must be having around business building, um, generally speaking. If I could back up to the 10,000 foot level for someone who's listening, but maybe missed out on the whole general discussion around innovation. You claim to be the first in the US around some smart home automation, i, I w- I'd love to hear from you. What are you first at as an innovator? Where are you carving out
1: your niche and and domain? The biggest goal that Powerly is trying to do is, is bridge the smart grid to the smart home. There's a lot of fantastic tools that are happening on the smart grid side. And there's, of course, a lot of great products and services that are happening on the smart home side. But there are very, very few connections uh, between the two sort of industries. And so what we're trying to be is that bridge between both sides and make sure that both sides of that equation are getting a lot of value-added uh, services that uh, that can benefit both sides of the sort of that B 2 B to C play. So for utilities, what we're doing is providing a cohesive platform that can have customers walk through this journey from energy awareness to full home optimization. But along the way, provide great tools around energy visualization, demand response, rate optimization, home automation, and for the utility and the customer. You know, I always like to to categorize us as sort of the the Fitbit of the home. But instead of tracking steps, we're, we're giving homeowners the ability to monitor their real-time energy use. You can set and track budgets. We provide a one-app smart home solution. Um, so instead of having seven different apps to control seven different devices, we have one app um, that bridges all of these different technologies together. And then ultimately, that allows us to provide deep insights into how Homeowners' appliances are operating, right? And on average, homeowners are saving over 10% of the energy bills with our with our service. You mentioned this earlier, Nico, around sort of a smart home being sort of a misnomer. We really don't have smart homes today. They're more of a connected home, right? A connected home largely is responding to commands, and that's what we're we're feeding our, our homes today, right? When we say, Alexa, can you turn off this light? Or if I open up the app and adjust the thermostat these are command driven interfaces right and to me a smart home responds to context and one of the best forms of context around the smart home is energy we largely have an untapped network in our home that all of our appliances are connecting to in our home's electrical system you know they're appliances are trying to talk to us, but we just really haven't been listening to them. And it's, it's crazy how much information you can actually understand around how the home and the appliances are operating. For example, we just three second real-time energy consumption that we get from a smart meter to our energy bridge. We can tell if you left a refrigerator door open. We can tell you if your HVAC, how well it's performing. So for example, if you're you know your connected thermostat is calling for cool, but we don't see the corresponding corresponding rise in electricity consumption that comes with running a compressor, we can send you a push notification immediately letting you know that your HVAC system has a malfunction. Or one of my favorites is sort of the washing cycle detection. So if you've ever been one of the, the folks like myself, will miss that their washing machine uh, cycle has ended and then leave their clothes to get moldy in the, uh, in the actual washing machine. <laughs> we can actually detect when your washing uh, uh, cycles um, end and not only send you a push notification, but we can tell you when you're running low on detergent Right, so if your detergent bottle that you have is good for seventy loads, and we're tracking the number of loads, we can actually automatically let you know that you know your your detergent's running low. We can you know give you and, and prompt you to to make sure that you never run out of that kind of stuff. And so to us, that is turning a connected home into a smart home. And energy is a major contributor to the contextual data that is needed to make that transition.
0: So as I listen here, I'm thinking about. Uh, something for me very close to home, my wife, uh, she she has a visceral reaction to the very idea of wow. having a smart lock on the front door and, <laughs> and, a, cam- and a camera uh, through Ring or, or, you know, God forbid, as I would prefer to have, uh, you know, a Samsung SmartThings platform or an Alexa enabled sort of smart home because she Here's that natural security question. Well, h- how do I know that someone can't hack this and break into my home? Walk me through then the security implications of what you're uh, of what you're trying to accomplish in the marketplace. How do you ensure that you can empower customers to to not feel like they're giving away their address, for example, <laughs> uh, to a party to a company that's working on behalf of DTE that they don't even know about? And number two, what are the real security concerns that consumers should be thinking about?
1: No, this is a huge important topic, and I appreciate you bringing this up because um, this is one of those things that doesn't get enough attention or discussion within this space. We often focus on a lot of the great use cases and all of the fun that can come with this, but security and its cousin privacy, I think, are you know two very important topics that uh, you know that just don't garner enough discussion in this space. Uh, and I'll start with privacy. Uh, so privacy to us is is the utmost priority in how we've designed our platform and how we've architected that with utilities. Just as you mentioned, smart home platforms know the status of things like the door lock, whether or not you're home or not, um, your preferences and the state of your appliances. and If I know where that door lock is located, I know the street address, I can attach your name and your location to these types of things. To me, that is breaking a privacy paradigm that I am not comfortable and and nobody at Powerly is comfortable doing. And so we've designed our entire platform to not collect any personally identifiable information on any user's. A lot of technology companies look at us and think we're crazy for giving up this opportunity for collecting all this data and potentially monetizing this. But this is one of those core principles that we have we truly believe in Powerly. We've designed and architected our platform around is we do not want to be able to link customer identifiable information with the status of your appliances throughout the home. So that that's point number one around privacy. And then security, I think that security is one of those things where we have to adopt the industry best practices around making sure that we're using um, top-of-the-line encryption standards to make sure that uh, uh, we have penetration tests from outside third parties that evaluate our performance. But I do want to also give a little bit of context around the security issues. I mean, usually you don't want to be the uh, the lowest friction point of penetration in terms of an attack vector, and usually that is going to be sort of like a window or a unlocked door for a particular home so I do like to give a lot of folks um, with a little bit of pause around the security aspect of, of home automation platforms that, in many cases, putting sensors around your window, putting uh, uh, an automated door lock that will automatically lock itself when you leave, since so you don't forget that, that you're going to actually be more secure in that regard than not having these types of, of notification systems and, and automated locks and those types of things. I mean, the actual encryption standard that we use to communicate to and from a door lock yeah, would take a you know a malicious actor sitting in your driveway for weeks or months on end to try to decrypt the actual communication to be able to remotely unlock your door um, that's not at nearly as feasible as that person throwing a brick through your window and just getting in that <laughs> way so you right. know we don't want to be the the lowest uh, or the easiest point of entry and we certainly aren't uh, since we do adopt the latest and the greatest encryption standards but I often find that a home is more secure actually when you start to put these automations and these monitoring capabilities uh, within the home so that uh, you know you can truly understand the state of what's going on and, and, and react immediately to that those issues
0: hey commercial solar friends you've probably heard that 2020 starts the solar plus decade well, that doesn't just mean solar plus storage. It means solar plus intelligent software like DemandX, Extensible Energy's demand charge reduction software that inexpensively reduces demand and time of use charges by 30% without batteries or extra permitting. By including DemandX software in your proposals, you'll increase customer ROI, shorten payback times, and help close more commercial solar and storage deals. Contact Extensible Energy at extensibleenergy.com forward slash suncast for a free demand charge analysis for your commercial solar project and start closing more sales in the Solar Plus decade. Get ready for comedy and fun coming in February at the inaugural Solar Comedy Slam to enter solar in San Diego. Produced by Chint Power Systems, a.k.a. CPS America, the Solar Comedy Slam will be the lit party to get 2020 started. Enjoy the shenanigans at this solar industry version of Last Comic Standing. Thanks to CPS America for bringing this fantastic idea to fruition. Whether you want to test your comedic metal or just get a good laugh at the expense of your industry colleagues, this will be a must attend event at Intersolar. Get your tickets or your spot in the lineup at SolarComedySlam.com. Again, that's SolarComedySlam.com. Since we were talking about topics that uh, might be considered myths that need busting, I think you guys, as I explored your blog, do a fantastic job educating on the blog. And one of these areas is you have this, uh, this, uh, this myth buster segment. One of the ones that is synonymous with sort of my childhood and the reason my parents never put Christmas lights up around the yard, for example, was that this, this, this idea, do Christmas lights use a lot of electricity?
1: <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. Um, and the answer to that is, is it, they can certainly, um, it really all depends, uh, very much on the type of lighting technology that you're using to produce those actual lumens, uh, when it comes to Christmas lights. And so if you're using sort of the old bulb style incandescent, uh, certainly those can use you know depending on how many lights you've actually got going on um, you, you know those can use you know three or four dollars a day um, just to power those uh, those lights so if you do have incandescent lights um, sort of the old style that's uh, you know you kept around you don't want to buy the new ones because those led ones look like they might be a sticker shock for you they'll pay themselves off within most likely the first season of you know lighting your home with christmas lights so i do implore you that uh, if you still got those old incandescents just switch to leds and uh, within the first first uh, lighting season um, you'll come out uh, ahead on that particular uh, investment from the
0: blog that you guys wrote about it which i think is fantastic uh, and i'll link to it in our show notes you show that on average, I think most people probably have something like a seven foot tree in their house, maybe around there. It's about 700 lights, costs you about 30, almost 30 bucks a month to, to run those Christmas lights. If you're using the old mini lights and switching to mini LEDs is $3 and 10 cents a month. I mean, that's a tenfold decrease. That's fantastic.
1: Oh, absolutely! I mean, it's one of those things where you don't think that uh, you know just lighting in general is going to contribute that much to your electricity costs, but um, that's one of those things where you know if you can get over that sticker shock again on the uh, on the LED lights, you'll find that you can get quite a bit of savings um, just by just by switching technologies. Kevin, for our second one here, I have
0: two fridges in my home. Uh, I have a a, a, I don't know six, seven, eight year old uh, Samsung uh, refrigerator that I've often thought about replacing. And I have the old infamous beer fridge down in the basement. You know, I hear my neighbors talking about upgrading their fridge to save money, uh, which kind of seems like a myth to me, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah. So first of all, uh, you know, I don't want to hate on your beer fridge, uh, but even the smaller refrigerators tend to use very similar amount of power than some of the larger ones. Um, so, I mean, by all means, keep that second refrigerator. Uh, but if your uh, thought process is getting a smaller mini fridge is going to save you a ton of energy, um, that's not necessarily the case. So oh, man, that's has- really good.
0: I'm glad that it's, <laughs> an, it's a complete it was the first fridge in the house and we just moved it to the when we did get a. Another fridge seven years ago. So,
1: (laughs) yeah, if you've got room in your main fridge, put your stuff in there. But, uh, you know, there's not every single uh, decision around your home has to be made through the lens of energy efficiency. But um, just note that those mini fridges aren't necessarily super efficient. To that extent, a lot of folks, one of the biggest myths and, and sort of justifications why someone's energy bill may be higher than somebody at the end of the month comes down to the refrigerator. Many homeowners think that the refrigerator could make up 30 to 40, even half of the of their energy bill because it's a relatively older unit, um, that's just not the case that we see in the data. Um, typically, your refrigerator is about five, maybe ten percent of your total energy costs at the end of the month. But refrigerators usually aren't the biggest culprit. Um, it's it's always on the vampire loads and your HVAC that you really want to focus on in the beginning. But from a refrigerator perspective, it's usually costing you about maybe five, five to ten dollars a month. Um, so if you're trying to go out and buy the latest and greatest, you know Samsung, LG, or, or high-end refrigerator, you know you're looking at a really long return on investment time in terms of the energy savings. So instead of thinking about your upgrade of trying to make a great ROI investment in terms of energy savings here, just enjoy all the the fun features that come with the uh, the new refrigerators and, and don't think about too much of the energy savings you're going to be getting uh, from that device, but um, yeah, your, your refrigerator is not necessarily the, the biggest draw of of, of energy in your home, for sure.
0: For those who are regular listeners and you're wondering, Nico, where the hell are you going with this? Uh, <laughs> I, I want to assure you, uh, in my mind, those of you who routinely sit down with homeowners and you have to address any number of myths in our industry that all tie back to how they choose to, number one, use energy. Number two, how they think about and choose to spend money to create long-term uh, ROI as, as a household, right? So you have to overcome some of these uh, some of these educational uh, data points with data. Many of them are around AC loads, around refrigerator use, because you got to remember Black Friday, folks are going to Lowe's and buying a new uh, energy-efficient washer and an energy-efficient uh, refrigerator. That's three grand gone that they could have put towards a solar system. Okay, <laughs> these are these are real valuable arguments that we have to be prepared to make. So the other one that I hear all the time is I hear you telling me to set back my AC a certain number of degrees when I go to work. But the reality is it takes more energy to cool back my home uh, after using a setback on my AC. And it's just, I, I don't know. I, I don't think that makes sense.
1: Is that a myth? <laughs> we get this one a lot. This one, uh, I think that um, a lot of people they don't want to believe that it works because they don't like having their home uh, cold and having to come home to a cold home and those types of things. So I think a lot of people will try to justify, uh, you know, sort of, uh, bunk science to try to uh, to try to not do this, but the data absolutely unequivocally shows that uh, a, a setback on your thermostats, and the higher the setback, even the greater the savings, will produce a, a ton of savings, up to four dollars per day, in fact, um, depending on where you are and you know demographically and uh, geographically, and what the environment of your home is like. But certainly, it, it does help, and the science is largely that. Um, from a thermal envelope of your home, uh, your home is always trying to be at the exact state of what the outside temperature is. It's trying to find an equilibrium. Right? So the larger the delta between the outside temp and the in- inside temp, the faster your rate of loss will be, whether it is heating or cooling loss. Um, so you always want to be as close to the outside temperature as possible to minimize the rate of loss, right? So as your home starts to, let's say you're in the summertime and it starts to heat up, you're going to lose less of that cooler air within your home over that period of time. So it certainly will save you quite a bit of money to, to set back your thermostat during the day. Um, when you're not home, and to offset the sort of comfort issue, uh, getting a scheduled thermostat or a connected thermostat will largely uh, eliminate any of the you know the pain points that come with the setback. so if you set your thermostat thirty minutes or an hour um, back to your prefer- uh, preferred temperature before you get home, you won't even notice uh, necessarily the um, you know the actual setback temperature. So this is one of those things where because HVAC can be up to fifty percent of your actual energy bill, there is a ton of savings um, that you can that you can make here. And uh, I do implore you, if you want to see all the research and the details and the data behind this, to visit our blog post specifically on this. But this is one of the best ways to actually save money on an energy bill is to is to set back your thermostat temperature.
0: Absolutely. And uh, again, I will link to the blog posts that do provide all the data and help you think through walking your customer through that conversation as well as I know many of you residential solar sales folks in particular probably get into these esoteric conversations quite often another one i think that and and this will be our final in the mythbuster series here that i know that we're all thinking about and dealing with uh, because i know that we know statistically customers who are inclined to upgrade homes not just to smart home automation but also to to renewable energy and solar power on their roofs are also prone to be thinking about integrating an electric vehicle. So a myth, a common myth around electric vehicles, and especially given that uh, electric car charters are a great way to uh, sort of as a Trojan horse to get into a home that, would, uh, that will soon become a, a solar power customer, is one that I heard a lot when I was selling solar panels. And it was this whole idea that uh, electric vehicles, since they have higher emissions during manufacturing, make any emissions savings irrelevant. Truth or
1: myth? Uh, this is this is definitely a myth. I can definitely see the argument here, where there's a lot of manufacturing and there's a lot of uh you know issues around what do we do with batteries that have reached end of life and those types of things. So I, I get the sort of premise of this, but um, again, when you actually look at the data, this is kind of going into some of the analysis we've done on the blog. But you know, gas cars roughly release about 20 pounds of CO2 per gallon, um, and so if you take the average fuel economy across um, our, our car fleet today, we're, we're about at 25 miles per gallon in terms of average. So um, you're, you're seeing gas-powered cars release about uh, just under a pound of CO2 per mile driven. If you take the average person's day or yearly uh, commute and, and how much they drive per year, you're looking at about 13,500 miles per year. So gas cars are emitting about just under 11,000 pounds of CO2 compared to about 3,700 emitted by EVs. Uh, per year, right, Uh, to actually produce the energy that goes into uh, charging those cars. After about 4,160 miles driven of an electric vehicle, probably within the first six months or less of life, EVs will have made up that additional emissions during the manufacturing process and those types of things. Um, So this is one of those where, yeah, it sounds plausible up front that EVs are going to produce a lot more emissions than, you know, our our gas-powered counterparts, but Uh, The data just doesn't uh, support that claim. I love it, Kevin. I think this is really uh,
0: informative and helpful. And I would encourage you to go and check out the blog at Powerly. We'll certainly link to that again in the show notes. Kevin, I'd like to round out our discussion today with a bit of insight from you around lessons learned and uh, how you have educated yourself and, and perhaps even how you influence those around you as an entrepreneur What are some of the key lessons or takeaways for you from the most important
1: mentors in your life or career? As a relatively young uh, entrepreneur, I think that it's very important to find an environment and specific mentorships or leaders within your organization that will give you a chance to blossom and flourish. Um, I had the the two co CEOs and and personal friends at Vector Vectorform gave me a shot early on. I was essentially very young, very early twenties. Had all these grandiose ideas, as most college do, uh, you know, people have coming out of college, um, and you know, you want to tackle the world. Um, you know, a lot of times you have to build up uh, decades of experience in order to try to make a change and allow and have the company sort of give you the opportunity to do that. But Vector Form was different. And, and the, the two CEOs there, Jason Vazano and Kurt Steckling, they saw a lot of raw talent in myself and they saw that I was hungry. And so they started bringing me to sales pitches and uh, bringing me into business meetings where I got to hear sort of the lingo and, and the, the conversations and sort of the social norms that happened in that space. And without that, I would just be another, uh, you know, hungry ambitious, sort of raw uh, you know, person coming out of college trying to find, you know, a way to make an impact. But they gave me the platform that gave me the opportunities to do so. And that is one thing that, you know, I love, like I said earlier, I love building solutions and products. But what I didn't realize was how much I loved helping people build their careers. And so, you know, as a CTO, it's it's um, you know, I've got quite a few direct reports. One of my favorite things about that is is to help, you know, Give back sort of those same opportunities that uh, that Jason and Kurt gave me at Vectorform to my folks that uh, that I help uh, you know that I help manage and try to grow their careers, and that is in many cases somewhat more satisfying than actually having those five star reviews come in from end users and those types of things because I can tangibly see this person with raw, great talent, start to you know shape into something that's going to make even larger impacts 10 to 20 years down the line. That is incredibly satisfying as an entrepreneur that I'd never really thought about before starting a company.
0: You mentioned the importance of finding an environment and leadership within an organization that'll give you a chance to flourish. It occurs to me that it may not seem so obvious to someone who's trying to figure that out for themselves, maybe in their own uh, career in early 20s. How to solve for that? How, how do you you know, it, it, perhaps they would look at your story and say, well, that's great. You got lucky. I've hated every boss I've ever had. How would you encourage someone to think about, you know, the interview process or the job selection process that would guide them to that sort of an organization?
1: Yeah, no, I think that uh, it's all based around uh, the culture that an organization is, uh, is running. If, if the culture is much more about um, this is what we want to make, here's all the requirements laid out for you, just go do this. Um, that's not an environment where you're going to really be able to think critically um, to come up with new ideas to pitch those ideas and try to make transformational change that you know that will be seen across the organization because they want they want to have predictable outcomes predictable development timelines and those types of things so I think that there's obviously great opportunity if you want to be in that environment go for it but if you're trying to to if you're really trying to grow your career and find an environment where you can think critically about how to approach a topic, then I think that you're going to want to find an organization that, from a culture perspective, puts the goal in front of the organization and says this is what we want to achieve and then has the actual individuals sort of rally um, together to come up with creative solutions to achieve that goal without trying to micromanage exactly how to make something or, or, or how to achieve that. And I think that if you can find or if you can influence your current situation to change the uh, leadership strategy or thought process into what do we want to make or achieve, rather than what do we want to make? I think you'll you'll find that's an easier way to find that success um, in that type of environment. It makes me think about as
0: well. How does one, especially as an entrepreneur and a leader in an organization as the team is growing, think about, talk about, and characterize the idea of failure
1: within the organization? For sure. Failure is one of those things where if that's not something that you embrace, then no one is going to want to try new things or have a culture of being super risk adverse. You know, failure has has actually shaped me as an individual quite a bit. You know, as I mentioned, you know, being relatively young in this in this space in this industry, where leadership skews a bit older, uh, if uh, <laughs> to say the least, for sure. I mean, when I go into a meeting, I'm often the youngest person in the room by twenty or thirty years. And in the beginning, this actually gave me a fairly large uh, imposter syndrome feeling, um, and it hindered my confidence in in pitches and in boardrooms and those types of environments. And I, honestly, I don't blame anybody for that perspective. I mean. They're looking at me like, "Who's this kid?" Asking me to spend millions of dollars. He's got no experience, right? Um, and I, I totally get that. And so, what I found, I had to do, and I and I looked at that as as a you know a could be a large failure point for me as an individual. That I found that I needed to. Um, Convince the room and those folks, I didn't have experience to fall back on. So what I had to do was sort of over explain a bit, get deep into the technical weeds or make really compelling arguments as to why that, uh, you know, my approach or what I'm saying is, is something they should give clout to. And I found that this actually made me a better leader in general, because I also mimic that style of communication you know, with the folks around me. So instead of uh, myself asking somebody to go do something for me, I largely try to give the appropriate context and understanding behind the ask. And um, again, set out what I want to achieve, not necessarily what I want them to do so that they can feel empowered to think creatively and how to approach that. But I feel like, that uh, environment and, and and promoting the idea that you may not have all the answers. You shouldn't be afraid to make the wrong decision because failure is not necessarily a failure. It's it's a learning experience that, you know, is you found a way that doesn't work, great. Uh, the only time that you find a way that does work is if you fail a, a ton of times figuring out what doesn't. And so I'm a huge proponent of getting things right through experimentation. And failure to me is essentially just, Experimentation.
0: As we turn the corner here, I'd love to hear. Obviously, you aren't working directly in uh, the clean energy business, but many listeners of Suncast are. What do you see happening right now that's exciting you about the clean energy industry, where you see it's going? What corners do you think we should be looking around?
1: When we started this this journey uh, about seven years ago, there was very, very few conversations around utilities really focusing on customer experience and providing new tools and services and actually being a provider and trying to get consumers to really engage in electricity consumption. So, you know, one of the things that I love seeing right now is this major shift in the industry around trying to build up. Great customer experiences um, that are provided by the utility, and you know, we had conversations early on where a lot of utilities didn't want to be a provider, um, but that you know that that change is is happening within the industry, and I love that. Um, and so, as we get into more of these advanced rates throughout the throughout the industry, and as you know, utilities are starting to um, proliferate these types of tools, I think we can change that. Uh, and we've done this at Powerly, change that twenty minutes. Uh, that we think about energy throughout the year to, you know, almost a a thousand minutes or, you know, you're looking at your energy consumption and thinking about that on a daily basis. To me, that is the most exciting thing that's happening because that's really where once you can get consumers to think about it and to, as you mentioned earlier, do the math on the ROI of instead of investing three grand into a refrigerator, put that into rooftop solar. The only way to actually proliferate clean energy with consumers is to get them to think about energy. And so uh, we think but there's uh, I love seeing the industry starting to make this transformation change to start engaging consumers into the actual product that utilities are selling within a kilowatt hour. and I think that's a very exciting time to be in the clean energy space because we're really starting and driving that conversation with consumers. I often say readers are leaders and leaders are
0: readers. Uh, I know from our previous conversation that you also uh, ascribe to this notion. I'd love to know what book or books have you recommended or gifted the most and why?
1: Yeah, I think that uh, one of the recent books that I just read was, uh, it's called Founders at Work by Jessica Livingston. It's essentially, uh, I think, a 30 or 40 different stories around startups on um, what they had to go through to get to where they are today. And for me, as a young entrepreneur, it was incredibly helpful to see that others are struggling with sort of the same stuff um, that we are. And it's not because of a lack of it. Lack of experience, or you know, you know, we're doing things differently or, or, or wrong. It's just that ultimately, building a company is hard, and there are so many things that you just don't think about before getting into it. And so, when you can read. The uh, the hardships and the successes that other startups have gone through, you start to see that you're not alone. You're not on an island, and it's the perseverance, it's the dedication, and it's the creative problem solving that can get you out of some of those things. And I think that uh, that camaraderie of knowing that you know other successful entrepreneurs have gone through the same stuff that you have is a really huge motivator. And and I just absolutely loved that book. I do, however, somewhat not traditionally. I don't actually read a ton of traditional books, mainly because I actually find that the kind of a low bandwidth way of absorbing information. Um, to be honest, I feel like most books that I've read, there's like two or three chapters that really get to the thesis um, of what they're trying to say, and the rest of the chapters can be, you know, context building or even superfluous uh, info sometimes which is why I tend to, to turn towards uh, you know, good blog posts, uh, great YouTube content, and honestly, especially podcasts. Uh, with something like podcasts, for example, you can get 10 different perspectives uh, on something in the same time that you could get by reading one book. For example, you're, I think you're nearing your what, 200th episode. Yeah. Um, so yeah. By the time if, this airs, we will have surpassed it. Oh, that's awesome, right? So, uh, in in the case of SunCast, for example, if it took me around five hours to read a standard book, then you know each of your episodes, I think, averages about an hour. So I could read about forty different books in the same time that I could listen to two hundred different brilliant people's perspectives from different parts of the industry and all of the things that they went through in sort of that same time that I could uh, read about forty books. So I just find that. The Podcast format and a lot of the great digital content that is generated nowadays is just a um, high bandwidth, uh, very curative way of, of getting the information that uh, that leaders seek. And I just, I just love absorbing that kind of stuff. I'm really
0: glad that you said that, said that, Kevin, because uh, not only I mean I read a, a, an incredible amount. I know that a lot of Suncast listeners often go and and look for these books that are recommended. But I often will say, "What's on your nightstand?" And this, I, in this case, I want to modify that slightly and say, uh, "Kevin, for you, what's in your podcast queue?" <laughs> yeah,
1: no, for sure. Um, and so, uh, one of my favorite podcasts right now that uh, I just recently found was "How I Built This." Oh uh, yeah, Guy on NPR. Um, Yeah, Guy Raz. Exactly. I find it's just fascinating some of the creative solutions that some of these you know well-known companies that we all know and love have gone through, and you just. You know, you don't think that they're going through the same uh, issues that uh, that you may be going through as a young entrepreneur, um, but they have. And it's crazy to see that, you know, we only know the success stories. And, you know, one thing that comes to mind is one of my favorite episodes was Airbnb. they uh, you know, one of the things I remember from that was that, you know, they essentially used credit cards as their VC money. They just, you know, kept charging things to credit cards and to pay those off. They uh, capitalized in the 2008 election between Obama and McCain, and they actually created their own cereal called Obama O's and Cap'n McCain, and they sold $40 boxes of cereal with those branding on it to host. To pay off their credit card debt, and that is brilliant. I, I love that creative solution thinking around a particular problem uh, because you know most companies will just go and raise money and they'll raise debt, or you know they'll uh, kind of get themselves into uh, financial uh, trickery. And, uh, but no, they, they came up with a, a really creative solution to be able to pay off their credit card debt. And those kinds of stories really give me a lot of motivation and, and, uh, you know, make sure that I stay the creative problem solving and thinking around particular solutions rather than sort of fall back to traditional means to, to solve those types of problems. So I think, um, it's just really fun to hear those different perspectives and some of those, you know, creative things that, uh, well known companies have gone through
0: so i 've got two more questions that I want to wrap with the The first is a quick one. This is just insight into your own habit forming and thinking about how you practice daily being a, a leader, being a you know someone who shows up in the world. What consistent habit or practice do you feel like has given you the greatest impact uh, in your life?
1: I would say there there's two things that I really do focus on on my day to day. I touched on one of them, um, and that's really what I learned at Toyota around Getchi Kibutsu or the idea of really trying to understand the foundational root cause elements of a problem. I feel like a lot of times that people will jump to the symptoms and trying to solve the symptoms of a problem rather than fully researching and investing time and effort into figuring out why that problem exists and why those symptoms exist. And so it's one of those things where I try not to look uh, at problems at a surface level and really deep dive into figuring out what's going on so I can come up with a creative solution around that. Um, And that really sort of segues into that second one, which is focusing on creativity I spend a lot of time trying to figure out unique ways to come up with the solution. Like I mentioned earlier, I feel like every problem is an opportunity for doing something great and awesome and unique, rather than sort of simply checking a box to get it done. And we we applied this to the to the real time visualization space. I mean, there's plenty of companies that did real time before us, but we looked at this from sort of that first principles viewpoint and trying to figure out, you know, how can we design something that isn't just showing. One value is for a customer. How do we give context around that value? How do we build the education to support that value? And that's really what makes me get up in the morning and look forward to the days. I don't love solving problems, to be honest. I love creating solutions that just happen to solve the underlying problem ahead. How can people find you? Uh, I know that you're
0: on Twitter. We'll link to your Twitter handle. Are you as well on LinkedIn?
1: I am. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, so just Kevin Foreman. You can search me there. Um, I'm on Twitter. Uh, but most of my content actually in this space is going to be produced directly through Powerly. So I recommend signing up for Powerless, uh Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. or on Instagram. Um, I actually do long form blog posts as well. Uh, so you can check out some of that stuff there. Well, let's in
0: today, Kevin, with a bold prediction, as we always do. What one thing do you see happening in the market that maybe nobody else is tracking? Let's look into your crystal ball.
1: Yeah. I mean, I mean, I believe homeowners are going to get their smart home via their utility company and actually not from the technology giants like we're getting today, just like Wi-Fi and DVRs uh, about a decade ago. Um, I think that our appliances are going to have a real-time sync with the utility rate engine, and they're going to auto-adjust based on real-time pricing signals um, or other complex rate types that are sort of increasing across the industry today. Ultimately, I think this is going to turn into where all of these complex rates and all that stuff is happening behind the scenes and customers will ultimately have energy as a service uh, where they can self-select into the type of energy plans that fit their needs and utilities will provide amazing tools to monitor, adjust, and manage the preferences um, across the system. So I think that uh, we're going to be going through a transformational way that we interact with not only our energy, but our energy company. And I think they're going to be um, a lot more uh, on the forefront of, of proliferating and delivering these services. And I think that's quite exciting. Is that on the five-year time horizon, 10, 15? Uh, I certainly think that uh, you know, we can do this within, within five years. I think that there's so much momentum right now in the, in the industry that um, you're going to see a lot of this, a lot of what I mentioned in the first five. And then ultimately, I think um, within the next decade, you're going to see most of this proliferate and it's going to become the standard across the industry.
0: Kevin Foreman is the co-founder and chief technology officer at Powerly, and we have been digging in today to uh, the myths being busted, the uh, transformation happening uh, behind the meter inside your home that can lead to not just you, but your clients as well, having a better experience and more control over something that ultimately we don't take a whole lot of time to think about and, and control. Kevin, thank you for joining us on Suncast. This has been super educational.
1: Thanks so much, Nico. It was a pleasure.
0: Alright, I am so honored that you're still here with me, and that puts you frankly in a small group of folks truly dedicated to growing and learning. I learned so much today from Kevin and this conversation, but I'm actually really interested to hear what you have learned. Would you mind sharing your thoughts with me? You can find me on Twitter as a Wesley777 did, or on LinkedIn as many of you do. I'm always on LinkedIn and responding, so appreciate you reaching out there. And I'm eager to hear how this discussion landed for you? What did we miss? What could we explore more? As always, you can find the resources and highlights from the conversation that we had with Kevin along with the social media links and the blog post links, etc., over at mysuncast.com. There's a big button there for getting to the blog. While you're there, please do consider becoming a Suncast email subscriber. That's one of the ways that I try to keep more regular contact with you. I promise not to spam you. We do have a lot of Suncast episodes coming out right now, so bear with me. We're trying to do not more than a couple of uh, emails a week, just letting you know that the episodes are out. You know, the fact that you're listening all the way through this outro tells me that you are a special part of our tribe. Since I see you headed already over to the website, won't you take a minute as a faithful listener and take our listener survey? It really only takes a couple of minutes of your time, and it definitely helps us mold suncast into something that serves you better thanks again to our sponsors who help make this podcast possible you help all of those who are listening to the show for free you can learn more about their services at mysuncast.com forward slash sponsor and hey if you ever thought about partnering with suncast that's also where you can learn more remember you are what you listen to thanks again for showing up Solar warrior it's half the battle